0: We apologise for the poor quality of the following recording of a sermon by the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Although we have digitally restored this to improve clarity, the quality is not as good as we would like. We do apologise for this, but nevertheless hope that this sermon will be a great encouragement and a blessing to you. The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the chapter most of which we read at the beginning, namely the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 5, verses 29 to 32, verses 29 to 32, in the fifth chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom ye slew and hanged on a tree, him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so he is also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them That obey him. Here we are this evening, met together in this chapel on an Easter Sunday evening. Why are we doing this? Why do we go on doing this Sunday by Sunday? Preaching this gospel, this message out of this book which we call the Bible. We know that we are but a small minority In this country today, and in every other country, the world scoffs at this and laughs at it and dismisses it. Why do we go on doing it? Well, now, that's the question I want to consider with you tonight, because we are brought face to face with that very question in this chapter, and in particular in these verses, which I've now uh, just taken as my text for this evening sermon. What is this chapter? Well, you noticed, it's really nothing but a very typical picture of the life of the early church. It's an account of how these apostles conducted and behaved themselves, how they preached and what they preached, and what happened to them. But in the main, you noticed, it was this. It's an account of a struggle which went on between these apostles, these preachers of the gospel, and the Jewish authority. From the very beginning the Jewish authorities tried to stop these men from preaching this gospel. There were accounts of their doing so in the previous chapter. They got hold of these men and they told them that they must preach no more in the name of this jesus they said it was wrong it was blasphemous and then so they prohibited them uh, to do so but we find that the apostles went on preaching him and because they continued to do so they got into trouble and this time when they were brought against the authorities you remember They were not only reprimanded very severely, but they were taken and they were thrown and cast into the common prison. The authorities said that this sort of thing must stop, that it was wrong, and that this Jesus whom they were preaching, whose name they wouldn't even mention because they hated him so much, was a blasphemer. So they threw them into the common prison. But you remember that suddenly they found the prison doors open. An angel had come and had opened the door, and they walked out. And the angel also told them to go back and to preach as they'd been doing before in the temple and everywhere else. So they went back into the temple and continued preaching and teaching the people. And then you remember this almost amusing story of how these authorities met together in the morning. And uh, told their officers to go and fetch these prisoners. That they really wanted to deal with them in a summary manner at last. And you remember how the officers went and they came to the prison. And when they went into that innermost part of the prison where they would put these men, they suddenly found that they were not there. So they would go back and report that they found the prison intact, but they couldn't find the prisoners. And there was confusion amongst the authorities. But the men came and said, I can tell you where they are. They're back at it again. They're back where they've been all along in the temple and other places, preaching and teaching in the name of this Jesus. So once more, these men were brought before the authorities. And again, they were severely reprimanded, as you Remember. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly commend you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then comes the reply of Peter that we are going to consider. When they had heard this, we read, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them, to put them to death. But one of their own company, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, who was had in reputation among all the people, he commanded to put the apostles forth for a little space, and then he argued with his own fellow Pharisees and said, Don't do that, he said. Wait a minute, let us consider this thing. Refrain from these men and let them alone, for if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. That if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest haply you may be found even to fight against God. And to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they smote them, they beat them with stripes, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And what was the reaction of the apostles to that? Well, here it was. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Now here's the question that confronts us. Why did the apostles do this? Why do they fly in the face of the edict of these authorities? Why do they take the risk of being beaten again with stripes? Why are they risking their very lives? Because, you notice, the decision of these men was before Gamaliel persuaded them to give them another chance, their decision was to kill them, to slay them. Well, here are these men who realize that if they continue preaching the name of Jesus Christ, they may very well be put to death, but nevertheless cease not from preaching and teaching Jesus in the temple and from house to house. What's the explanation? What made them do it? Come, let me ask another question on this Easter Sunday evening. Why has the church continued doing this throughout the running centuries? Can you explain to me the story of the martyrs? These men who were told by authorities later in their day and generation, if you go on preaching that gospel we will put you to death. But they went on preaching The early Christians, dozens of them were thrown to the lions in the arena. What made them do this? Why go on preaching this message, though they knew that that was to be their fate? How do you explain the story of the martyrs in those first three centuries? How do you explain the martyrs before the Reformation, like John Huss and Wycliffe in this country and others? How do you explain the Protestant martyrs and reformers, so many of whom were put to death here in London and others in Oxford? What was it that possessed these men? Why did they go on preaching and teaching Jesus Christ, though they knew, I say, that they'd have to pay for it with their very lives? What made them go on and cease not? The answer to that question is given to us in these verses that I'm holding before you this evening. The Apostle Peter has given the answer once and forever. And I'm concerned about it, my friends, because here we have the key, the secret to the success of the Christian Church in all ages of revival and of reawakening. And it is only as we come back to this, and are animated by the same motives, and possessed by the same spirit, that we can justify our existence as Christians, and the church can still be worthy of the name of the church of God. Why do we do this? Why did the apostles do it? Let me answer that question. For as I hold before you the reasons that were given by Peter, Why, he and his fellow apostles went on, I shall be giving you the reasons that have possessed and influenced men ever since in the long history of the Christian church. Very well, here it is. Here is the first reason. The apostle doesn't hesitate to tell these people that they go on doing this because of the nature, the character of the things that they have witnessed. He said, we are witnesses, we are his witnesses of these things. And so also is the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. You ask me, says Peter, why I and my fellow apostles go on doing this, in spite of your threatenings, in spite of all the punishment you've given us, in spite of imprisonment and threatened death. I'll tell you why, says Peter it's the things we have seen and heard what's he talking about well he's talking about the lord jesus christ himself these men you see had been his disciples three years they had spent their days and their nights with him they had looked into his eyes into that face of god and they'd felt something that they'd never felt before this man the speaker peter had been up onto a mountain with him also james and john being in the company and there suddenly a cloud had overshadowed them and they felt sleepy but suddenly they awake and they see two men speaking to jesus moses and elias and he was suddenly transfigured before them his very body began To shine, it became luminous. It began to shine with a brightness that no human being can ever produce or has ever seen. And they'd seen it. And they'd heard a voice coming out of heaven and saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. They were witnesses of these things. But not only that, they'd heard all his teaching. This carpenter of Nazareth there's apparently ordinary men who'd never been trained as a Pharisee, but who could always rout the Pharisees in any argument that happened to arise. This man who spoke with such authority and power and who claimed such unique things for himself, they'd heard it all, they'd been with him. And then they'd seen his miracles. The blind receiving their sight, the lame walking, the deaf being made to hear, the lepers being cleansed, yea, the dead raised. They were there, they saw it. They were there. One afternoon walking with him out of a city and suddenly they went into a city and suddenly they met a procession coming out of the city, a funeral procession. And lying on the bier was the dead body of a man, the only son of his widowed mother, the widow of Nain. And suddenly they'd seen our Lord stopping the procession, and addressing the dead, and raising him. They'd seen it. They were witnesses of it. Peter and James and John were with him on the occasion in Jairus' house. When he suddenly took hold of the hand of that dead child, twelve years old, and said, Talitha kumi, which being interpreted means maiden, I say unto thee arise. And they'd seen us sitting up and beginning to eat. They were with him on that occasion when a message came to tell him, that his friend Lazarus was desperately ill and at the point of death. Oh, they were with him when another message came to say that Lazarus was already dead. And they'd gone with him to that cemetery. And they'd stood there with him. And they'd heard him shouting, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, who'd been dead four days, came forth. They'd seen these things. They were witnesses. They were there. We are witnesses of these things, says the apostle. Ah, but it doesn't stop there, does it? They were amazed at all this. And they said, this is undoubtedly the Messiah that is going to restore the kingdom to Israel. But, ah, they had seen something else happening. They couldn't understand it. They were baffled and bewildered. They saw him insisting upon going up to Jerusalem. They tried to stop him. They'd heard that Herod was determined to kill him. They did their utmost to dissuade him. He wouldn't listen. He set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. And they went with him. And there to to there astonishment and amazement, he seemed to be quite helpless suddenly. He said nothing in self-defense. He allowed them to arrest him. They couldn't understand it. Peter tried to defend him with a sword. He told him to put it by. He seemed to be so weak suddenly. And they saw him arrested and scourged and smitten and a crown of thorns pressed upon his holy brow. They saw him staggering under the weight of a cross until he was relieved by Simon of Cyrene. And they saw him nailed to the cross. And die in apparent utter weakness and complete helplessness. They heard his cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They heard him saying into thy hands, I commend my spirit. They saw him giving up the ghost and dying. They were there when his body was taken down from the tree and put into a grave. They saw the storm rolled over the face of the grave. They saw the seal put upon it, and the soldiers put there to guard it and to watch it. They'd seen all this, they were there! But they'd seen something that had shaken them again to their very foundation. What was it? Well, they were the men who'd been running, you remember, on the morning of the third day, certain women came to them and said, look here, they said, we've been to the cemetery. We've looked there into the tomb and he's not there. What? They said, and John and Peter ran. And Peter and John had been there together. They'd looked into the tomb and they'd seen it empty and they'd gone into it. And they'd seen the clothes but no body. He'd gone. He'd risen from the grave and from the dead and then you see they'd been present and they were eyewitnesses of his many appearances to them Two of them were going to a place called Emmaus and were miserable and unhappy and said we thought after all that he was to be the christ and the messiah but ah he was crucified in weakness and died and suddenly a stranger joined them and said what is this conversation and why are you so sad and miserable and they told him the miserable story and then he was going to leave them they said, wait with us, it's getting late, stay with us. And he went with them. And there they began to break bread and suddenly they knew him, Christ, the risen Christ had appeared to them. They were all together apart from one of them called Thomas another occasion in a room. The doors were shut and locked because they were afraid of the Jewish authority. Suddenly Jesus had stood in their midst. They were there, they'd witnessed it. He'd spoken to them. He'd said, look at me, I'm not a ghost. He'd eaten fish and broiled honey in their presence. He'd said, touch me, feel me. Realize that I'm risen in the body. They were there, they'd witnessed it. Peter and John and some of the others on one occasion were again feeling rather dejected and downcast, and Peter said suddenly to the company in the evening, I'm going to fish. He was an old fisherman. He said, I'm going back to do some fishing. And they went with him. And they toiled all night and didn't catch a thing. Suddenly in the morning, as the dawn was breaking, they saw some person standing on the seashore and giving them instructions saying, throw the net on the right-hand side and you'll catch. And they did so. And they caught 153 fish. And yet their net didn't break. And they looked again. And they said, it's the Lord. And Peter jumped into the sea as he was and swam to him. The others came in the boat. And there he spoke to them and addressed them. Indeed, he'd been cooking a breakfast full of fish on a fire which he'd made there upon the sand. And then they'd all been with him. Yet later on, and he had spoken to them and he had addressed them. And then he took them to a mountain outside jerusalem and as they were there standing and talking to him he suddenly began to ascend and they saw him ascending into the heaven even as they stood there and an angel had come and had said to them this jesus shall so come again even as you have seen him going go back to jerusalem and wait for his instructions. Now these men, I say, as Peter reminds these authorities, they were witnesses of all these things. And back they'd gone to Jerusalem, and there they'd waited in an upper chamber. He told them to wait. He said, look here, I want you to go and tell the world about me and about these things. But not yet, he said. Wait until you're given power. Wait until the Holy Ghost comes upon you. He'd already spoken about the Holy Ghost. He had already told them that he was going to send him upon them. He said, wait and he'll come. And they were all together in an upper room, 120 of them, on a morning, on a Sunday morning called the day of Pentecost, when suddenly there was a mighty sound like of a rushing wind and cloven tongues of fire descended upon them all and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. They were in the company. They were witnesses, they were eyewitnesses, they were first-hand witnesses of all these things. You ask me why we go on preaching this name, says Peter, that's the answer. Do you think that anybody who's seen these things can keep quiet? Could you keep quiet if you'd been there? We are witnesses of these things. We want to tell everybody about him and about these things. They'd seen them. They were living eyewitnesses of them. Ah, yes, and that which had happened to them on the day of Pentecost had given them a new understanding about it all. Indeed, our Lord himself, after his resurrection, had explained it to them. You read the 24th chapter of Luke's Gospel when you go home, and you'll find that he took them through the Scriptures. He took them through the law and the Psalms and the prophets and showed himself to them everywhere. He proved to them that all these things were written about him, that he was the long-promised Messiah. And they were beginning to get it. But then came this baptism of the Holy Spirit and they saw it all, they understood. And they loved him and they revered him and they saw, as Peter says, that God had exalted him and had made him a prince. What does that mean? Well, that means this. They saw at last what even they had been so slow to see in his days in the flesh, that this Jesus of Nazareth the carpenter was none other than the only begotten, everlasting and eternal Son of God, who had humbled himself and had come down to do a work for mankind and had gone back again and was now seated at the right hand of God. God had exalted him and had made him a prince, which means a governor, a leader, a ruler, which being interpreted, you see, means this. He'd explained it to them. One of his last words to them had been this, All power is given unto me, in heaven and in earth, God had made him a prince, God had put this world into his hands, all its affairs, its destiny, its future, its peoples, its everything, were in his hands, he's a prince. They'd seen that, they'd come to understand it. Indeed, they'd come to understand something else, and that is that God had made him not only the moral governor of the universe but had appointed him to be the judge of the world they all said that Peter says it the apostle Paul says in preaching at Athens that God hath given assurance of the judgment to come in the name of Christ in this way that he hath raised him from the dead a prince And they have come to understand all this, and so they tell the authorities, We can't refrain, we must. He's the Son of God. He's the ruler of the universe. He's the Prince. We are witnesses of these things. We have companyed with the Son of God when he was here on earth as a man. And we want to tell you that he is the Son of God and that your destiny and the destiny of the whole world is in his hands. That's his first reason. But it wasn't his only reason. We, he says, are witnesses of these things and so is also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him. Why are you preaching, said these people to Peter. Peter says in reply, we are preaching as we are because we've seen these amazing, astounding things. And we can't contain ourselves, but more, we are driven by a power. There is an energy that has come into us since that day of Pentecost. We don't know ourselves, we are transformed, we are transfigured, we are filled with a heavenly joy and a peace we've never known before. We are in touch with him and he speaks to us and he manifests himself to us and we are driven, he's commanded us, he's sent us. We cannot but speak of the things which we have seen and have heard. We are being born along by an unseen power. There is a mighty energy that's entered into our very constitutional being. We can't refrain. We must. That was his second reason. But then he has a third reason, he tells us. And that is that God has commanded them to do this and they're afraid of God and afraid not to do it. Listen, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men, by which he means this. He says we are not disputing but that you are authorities and that you've got power. You are heads of government. And in a sense we are in your hands. And we do respect you and we fear you. But we fear God more. We ought to obey God rather than men, and God has commanded us to go on preaching. Why did they thus fear God? Oh, I've already given you the answer in the sense. Yes, says Peter, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand. And the right hand of God always stands for the power of God, and the might of God, and the irresistible force of God. God, he says, hath exalted him with his right hand. And they were eyewitnesses of this power of God. Where had they seen it? Well, they'd already seen it, you see, in the resurrection. They knew that Christ had died, they'd seen him dying, they'd watched him expiring upon the cross. There was no question about his death, that was absolutely certain. At last he'd been mastered and conquered by a power, but then he'd risen. Here was a power that was greater than the power of the Jewish authorities that were threatening them. Ah yes, they respected them and were afraid of them, but they were more afraid of God. Here is a power that can countermend the action of the Jewish authorities. They slew him, God raised him. They were eyewitnesses of the fact that God's power is even greater than the power of death, even greater than the power of the grave. Ah, yes, it's one thing to be afraid of men, but here is one above men, master even of death and the grave, to which all men are subject. We ought to obey God rather than men. We dare not stop, they say. The power of God and he's commanded us. They'd seen it at the resurrection. They'd seen it on the day of Pentecost. They'd felt it. They were filled with it. They'd seen the walls of a house shaking when the Spirit came and filled the place. They'd just seen it in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. A man and a woman who thought they were very clever, that promised to give all their possessions but kept back apart. And they'd seen Ananias suddenly dropping dead. And then in a few hours Sapphira dropping dead. What's this? The power of God. They'd also seen it in the prison the previous evening. The Jewish authorities had power and authority to throw them into the common prison. Yes, but God had power to send an angel to open the gates. And out they'd gone, the power of God. That was why they said they went on preaching because they dare not disobey God. We ought to obey God rather than men, they say. And even Gamaliel, you see, understands a little bit about it. He says to his fellow governors, be careful, he says. If this is of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest haply you be found even to fight against God. Be careful, he said to his fellow members of the Sanhedrin. You don't put yourselves against God, because God is God. And when you're fighting God, you're fighting the Lord of the universe. Be careful. We ought to obey God rather than men. That's why we are preaching, says Peter. And later on, another preacher called Paul says the same thing. In writing to the church at Corinth, listen to him saying it. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Yes, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. Therefore... Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. That's why I'm preaching. I've got to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of my life in this world. Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, this Christ whom God has exalted to be a prince, we persuade men. We ought to obey God rather than men. And that is what every martyr has ever said throughout the centuries. They were told in the early days to say, Caesar is Lord now. They say we won't say it. If you don't say the authorities, will throw you to the lions and you'll be trampled. The Protestant fathers were told it, stop or we'll burn you at the stake. It made no difference to them. They all said with Paul, knowing the terror of the law. We persuade men. They remembered the word of the Lord Jesus to his disciples when he said, Fear not them that kill the body, but after that have nothing that they can do. But rather, I say unto you, fear him that hath power to destroy both soul and body in hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. That's why we are preaching, said Peter. We've seen these amazing things and we want everybody to know about them. We are moved by the Spirit and God has commanded, and we dare not disobey him. But you know there was one other thing that made them go on. And this is the most amazing and remarkable thing of all. And that was their concern for these very Jewish authorities who were threatening them and even threatening them with death. They were concerned about them and about their souls. So they go on preaching and Peter here even in their presence is preaching to them. Stop preaching in this name, says the authorities. Peter says, look here, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged in a tree, and he's preaching to him. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance and remission of sins. He's preaching to him. Why? Well, it is because of their concern for the souls of these men. What do I mean? Well, I mean something like this. They went on preaching because they understood the terrible plight and position and condition of these men. I'm preaching to you, said Peter, because you don't know what you've done and you don't know the danger in which you're placed at this moment. You have failed to recognize Jesus of Nazareth as the Son of God. You called him a blasphemer. You said, who is this fellow? You instigated the mob to cry, away with him, crucify him. You rejected him. You spat upon him. You scourged him. You mocked him and jeered at him. You slew him. You hanged him on a tree. You made him a curse. And you've even since then refused to believe our testimony about the empty grave and his rising again. You refuse to listen to God's command to repent and to believe on him. You're disobeying God. You're resisting the power of God and his almighty strength. We're preaching, said Peter, because you and the people who've listened to you are under the wrath of God. You don't realize it. You don't know it. You're blind. You're mad. You're insane. You don't realize that you're under God's eye and that you've disobeyed him. You've resisted him. You refuse to honor his only begotten son. You've gone on living as if his son had never come into this world. And you don't know that you'll go to hell if you persist like that. The wrath of God is upon you. And you don't know it. That is why we are preaching this same Peter was preaching, you remember, on that day of Pentecost, and that is what he'd said to the people. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Make haste, he said. God is judging the world. He sent his son, and the world has rejected him and crucified him, and won't believe in him, and God's wrath will descend upon such. That is why we preach, says Peter. And that is why I'm preaching, my dear friend, to you at this moment. And that is the message of this day, that God hath exalted him and made him a prince. Everything is in his hands. He is to judge the world in righteousness. As certainly as we are in this chapel at this moment, this Jesus who was crucified on Good Friday, buried, but who rose on Easter morn, and who then ascended 40 days later into heaven, and is seated at God's right hand, will come back. He'll come back riding the clouds of heaven, and he'll come back to judge the world in righteousness, and you will have to face him, and you'll have to stand before him and give an account of your life, and tell him why you didn't believe in him and why you went on living as if he'd never come at all. That's why we preach, says Peter. They were concerned about the condition of these people and they wanted to tell them the most wonderful thing that men could ever hear, that this same Jesus whom God had exalted with his right hand to be a prince, had also been exalted to be a Savior. That even they could be saved if they but believed in him. They who condemned him to death and had spat in his face, they could be saved. He's a Savior. God, they said, sent his only Son into this world to seek and to save that which was lost. He didn't come to blast mankind. He didn't come to destroy it. He came to save it. God sent him as the Savior. And you see, says this apostle, we are preaching because we want people to know that. We want them to realize their danger in sin, but we want them to know about the Savior. As Paul puts it, not only does he say, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, he also says, the love of Christ Constraineth us. I'm driven, he says, by the love of Christ, the Christ who died for his enemies, died for the men who crucified him, died for the men who blasphemed him. The love of Christ is driving me on. Men hate me. Men throw me into prison. But I'm preaching still. Why? I want them to be saved, and they can be saved. He's even loved them. exalted not only to be a prince, but also a savior. So they couldn't be stopped because they wanted to tell people these things. That this Jesus, to whom these amazing things had happened, was not only Son of God, but was the Savior of the world, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So Peter says finally, I must go on, because I want to tell you about the character of the salvation. What is it? It's this. He has got a salvation to give. He is a prince and savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. Oh, this is the most wonderful thing of all. He offers salvation as a free gift. He comes to the sinner died with the deepest dye of sin and tells him that he's died for him. He gives it him as a free gift. The message is so glorious, says Peter, who can refrain? I'm not asking men to pull themselves up by their bootlaces. I'm not asking a man to save himself or make himself a Christian. I know that no man can. I've come to tell you of God's free gift in Jesus Christ. And what he gives is repentance, which means this. He, by the Holy Spirit, enables a man to see himself as a sinner. And as his terrible, awful plight, you haven't seen that. Well, Christ alone can make you see it. And he makes you see it by his Spirit. You say, I'm not interested in your Easter Sunday. It means nothing to me. If it doesn't, I'll tell you why. It's because you don't realize that you are a sinner. It's because you haven't faced the fact of your death. It's because you haven't visualized yourself on your deathbed. It's because you haven't seen yourself after death in the judgment facing this Christ. You don't realize it. You don't know it. But he'll enable you to do so. He'll give repentance. And he'll fill you with a sense of terror and alarm. You'll say, what can I do? Where can I turn? Like the men on the day of Pentecost, you'll cry out, men and brethren, what must I do? And the answer will come back, repent. Which means that having realized all this, you go to God at once and acknowledge how blind you've been, what a fool you've been, how you've disobeyed God and spurned his vice and have followed your own way and haven't believed in his Son and have used Christ as an oath and have never worshipped him and have never gloried in him. You acknowledge it all with shame and tears and cast yourself upon his mercy. And then, having given you that repentance, he will give you remission of sins. He'll tell you, ah, you're right, you're seeing yourself now as you are, as a hell-bound and a hell-deserving sinner. But you're not going there. I came into the world in order to deliver you from that. I came into the world in order to taste death for you. I took your sins upon myself on that cross on Calvary's Hill. I died the death that you should have died. I bore your punishment. And because of that, God forgives you freely. Remission of sin. He gives it as a gift. He tells you that whatever you've been until this minute, he'll blot it all out. He'll cast it into the sea of his forgetfulness. Your sins are remitted. The ledgers are struck out. The account is cleared. And he'll give you his own life and his own righteousness. Repentance and remission of sins. He will tell you that you need no longer fear death and the grave and the judgment beyond it because he himself is the judge and he has died for you and paid your account to the uttermost farthing. That is why we preach, said Peter, you rulers of Israel, have disobeyed God, and you're under his wrath, and nothing awaits you but hell, and there is only one who can save you, the Jesus whom you slew and held upon a tree, but whom God has exalted to be a prince and a savior. Neither is there any other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. Believe in him, says Peter. Repent and believe. That was his message. And my dear friend, the message is still the same. God commands all men everywhere to repent and to believe on the name Of his only begotten Son. Have you obeyed God? Have you obeyed God? Have you repented? Have you realized what a vile sinner you are? How you've sinned against God and deserve hell and are going to hell? Have you realized it? Have you confessed it? Have you realized that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God who came into this world to save you and who at the end of the ages will be the judge of the universe? Have you realized it? Have you believed it? God commands you to believe it. Have you bowed your knees before this blessed Jesus and said, My Lord, my God, have you given yourself to him? Are you resting upon his perfect work? God commends you to do that. Are you like these Jewish authorities that refuse? Or are you like these apostles who say we ought to obey God rather than men? I beseech you this evening, where is the position? It's no use you saying, ah, well, I'm not frightened by that kind of thing. I'll turn my back upon this Jesus and go my own way. I'll get rid of him. True! the message of the resurrection is answering you. You can't get rid of Jesus Christ. The Jewish authorities thought they could and they thought they had when they'd slain him and buried him and put a stone and a seal and the soldiers but out he came and faced them again through the apostles. You'll never get rid of Jesus Christ. Do what you will. Turn your back on him. Go to the ends of the earth. Do everything. But he'll come back and back and back and at the end You'll have to face him. Every eye shall see him. Yea, and they that have slain him. You can't evade him. He's been exalted by God to be a prince. He's the governor of the universe. He's the judge of the world. And do what you will, I say, and hate me as you like. You can't get away from him. You'll have to come back to him. And there you'll stand before him. Every eye shall see him. And you'll be in one of two companies. Either in the company of those who, seeing him, will rejoice in him and glory in him, and be turned into his same image and be like him, or like unto those who will say to the rocks and to the mountains, Fall upon us and hide us from the wrath of the land. It's a tremendous thing, this, my friends, and I speak with a due sense of the solemnity of the situation. It is my humble privilege to repeat to you the words of the Apostle Peter. We ought to obey God rather than men. Are you obeying the newspapers and their clever writers with all their sneers and their jeers? Are you obeying men? If you are in the light of these things that these apostles had witnessed, I say there's only one thing to say of you. You're a fool. Obey God. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party, and second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.